Hi, and welcome to the Book on Fire. I'm Dave. And this is Janet. And this is season two, in which we will be discussing the book called Caliban and the Witch by Silvia Federici. This is a great book. This book has been really um, important for a lot of people to understand uh, some of the conditions that we are, are living through right now. And we've been really excited about our reading of this book, and we're really excited to talk about it with y'all, to talk about it and to take y'all through the book chapter by chapter. And this is episode one. This is where we're going to start. So in this episode, we are just going to talk about the preface and the introduction, but that is also going to mean explaining some terms that are going to come up. Uh, Here we are going to talk about Silvia Federici, just talk about the author and where she's coming from. We're going to talk about why we think this book is important and why this book has been important to other people in this era. And that's going to take a good time, a good amount of time and also take us through many of the themes that come up in the introduction and preface. And then we're going to define some terms, um, especially some of the terms that come from Marx, because Federici is working within a Marxist framework, although she has a lot of criticism of Marx. And... We're going to define the categories she's using, including the category of women. What does Federici mean by the woman when she says woman? Which is in the title. Which is in the title. And uh, we're going to talk about the title itself and what it means. Caliban, the witch, women, the body, and primitive accumulation. Then anything that's left that we haven't covered yet from the preface and introduction, we're going to go over at the end. So that's kind of a lot. We're going to try and do this as seamlessly as possible. Um, Yeah, definitely. It's a lot just to orient yourself into the framework and the stream that the book is a part of, especially if you don't just live there all the time. So I guess we can start off by talking about Silvia Federici. Who is she? Silvia Federici, she was born in Italy. She's an Italian-American Marxist, autonomous Marxist, and feminist. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be an autonomous Marxist? An autonomous Marxist? Autonomous Marxists do not share the ideas of like Stalinists and Leninists who take Marxist ideas and Marxist ideology into the domain of like taking control of the state mm-hmm. and creating Marxist-administered communist states. Right. You know, autonomous Marxists come from, they have a different reading of Marx that has to do with the action part, creating autonomous communities and autonomous worker struggles Mm -hmm. that are not subjugated by a party, a state, and like big labor unions. All right. Right. So it's a more anti-authoritarian style of Marxism. Non-hierarchical. Yeah, basically. If I'm encapsulating that right. Because, you know, just to say Marxist, Mm -hmm. to, for a lot of people, invokes the specter of state communism Mm -hmm. and the hierarchy of the International Communist Party. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of Marxists out there who do not adhere to that form of administration. Um, I think I would also add that as we go, although we're not Marxist or coming from a Marxist framework exactly, we do appreciate some of the frameworks that Marx contributed and especially appreciate the ways that those theories have been expanded 
and adjusted to discuss the current era that we're in. And Federici is one of the people who's creating theory in that vein. Yeah, yeah. Marx's analysis of capitalism and and the stratification of capitalist society is like too good to ignore right. in a lot of ways, but it's also really incomplete. And so probably you even listening to this, whether you know it or not, Marx has influenced your way of thinking about the way that the world is constructed and what mm-hmm. capitalism means, uh, just like it has for us. Even though to be a Marxist is to put a Marxist analysis of society at the center mm-hmm. of your understanding of society. Right. And so I don't call myself a Marxist, but I do understand what he contributed, you know, and then and someone who's a Marxist feminist like Sylvia Federici would be somebody who appreciates what Marx contributed to the extent that she still uses the terminology, uses his basic understanding, but also has a critical engagement with Marx where he's not up on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. It's just part of her work is to flesh out the Marxist analysis more, correct what was gotten wrong or missing, add in the parts that need to be added in, stuff like this, you know. And we'll talk about that a lot more fully, not just today, but as the book unfolds. Mm -hmm. So... Yes, Sylvia Federici was born in Italy in, I think, 1942. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's of that generation, and she's still with us. She's still alive and writing books, which is great. But she's lived in the U.S. for a long time, I think. I think she first came to the U.S. in the 60s, in like 67, I want to say, and not knowing totally for sure, but I think she's basically lived in the U.S. since. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the movements that she is still most associated with is called the Wages for Housework movement. And this is something that evolved out of Marxist feminism in the 70s. And it has a lot of it has a lot of overlap with the kind of analysis that she's bringing in Caliban. Right? Okay. Uh, so Italian-American Marxist autonomous feminist who participated in the Wages for Housework movement. And this book itself was written in the 90s. And the Autonomedia version that most of us have or that we have uh, came out in 2004, but I've also seen 1998 as a publication date for the book. So this book is a product of the 90s and came out, you know, around the turn of the millennium, basically. And the Autonomedia edition is definitely anti-copyright, so it, you can feel free to print it out. So there's free copies available online, which we need to link to. I don't think we've done that yet. Yeah. If you don't have the book already and you haven't found your way to an online copy and you'd like to look in the show notes for this episode, I'll put links there. I put them in the show notes for the last episode, but I'll put them in the show notes for this episode too, in case you're just joining us. So in the last episode, we talked a little bit about why we chose this book and why we think this is an important text for right now, but I think we should talk about that a little bit more. So one of the main reasons that this seems to be this book seems to be coming up a lot for folks or people are being drawn to reading it right now is because Caliban and the Witch is about what is often called the transition to capitalism, which Federici always puts in quotes the word transition, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the era that she's discussing is what is referred to as the early modern era, the 16th and 17th century which at that point, the colonial conquering of a lot of parts of the globe was already well underway by European powers. And 
there was a big shift happening from feudal economy to the capitalist economy. And Federici largely dismisses the idea that this was just a transition. The reason that she does this is because when you read different economists or historians who are not thinking as critically about this shift in history, they will often discuss it in a way that makes it just seem like capitalism just kind of erupted or emerged Mm-hmm. rather than evolved. evolved. Oh, yeah, that's a way that people <laughs> yeah. talk about it, too. And Federici's point in this book, and a lot of other people who talk about this would also say this, is that it wasn't a transition, but actually a violent, coercive effort to create a new power structure. Yeah, transition sounds kind of peaceful. Right. It, and, like, maybe natural. Right, exactly. You're right. Which is why she puts it in scare quotes, I think. So you see, it's always in quotes in the Federici book. And so if you don't actually have it and you're not reading along, you should know that whenever, if we say the word transition, we are using it in quotations, probably even in the room right now. You can picture us making little quotes. Um, so, But there's not a more perfect word. Right. Exactly. We sometimes say the creation of The creation capitalism. of capitalism. So the fact that there was a really big shift then that she was covering is something that we're sort of mir- seeing mirrored now. A lot of people are drawn to this book again because we are in another big shift and it's still up in the air what's going to happen. But people have capitalism and its limitations on their mind because the capitalist project is failing all over the world. It's not delivering on meeting people's needs. It's not helping people feel safe or abundant, which is built into the system, but we were told that was otherwise. Mm -hmm. And people are starting to actually en masse criticize this economy and understand that it's not inevitable and not natural. Yeah. So this book has become relevant, has a heightened relevance right now to people because it's about the beginning of capitalism and we may be at the end. We may be. It's it, it's unclear whether capitalism is going to come to a fiery demise uh, exactly or if it's going to somehow be able to reinvent itself But part of what this book does is it helps us remember that capitalism doesn't just stretch endlessly back Mm -hmm. into the past and that it actually has a very, a very discernible historical emergence. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like Janet was saying, it didn't emerge just out of a gradual accumulation of developments to where you couldn't really talk about when it started. It was actually created as a saving mechanism by the rulers in order to deal with basically uprisings against feudalism that were happening, which we will get into in a lot of depth. And we're not used to thinking transition. Mm -hmm. That's part of, I think, our theme here on the Vogon Fire is we're not used to thinking transition. We're used to thinking this is the way the world is constructed and how am I going to behave within it? And the way it's constructed is kind of a given, but we are entering a period when it feels like more is up for grabs, more change is happening, good and bad. There's more things that are shifting. Capitalism is maybe not just in crisis because it fails to meet people's needs, but also in crisis because it's it's failing according to its own metrics. <laughs> the 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 rate of profit and capitalism has been declining since the 70s and a lot of political and economic developments since then can be read just in terms of that 
austerity measures being imposed on people and all of this, you know, as they try and squeeze the last drops of productivity out of us. And also it's coming up against the very real limit to growth. And yeah, so we're in a time period where I think, and this is a good development, fewer and fewer people, especially younger people, (laughs) are taking capitalism for granted. Right. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's like, it's people want to learn about capitalism partially to denaturalize it, right? Mm -hmm. To see it as something ephemeral, something constructed, and something that's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And this book helps us see the way it was constructed and what it's made of and what is necessary to keep it going. I think another reason why a lot of people are reading this book now is, I mean, I could be kind of flip and say, because it has witch in the title. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but it's not just that superficial, right? The book, it's called Caliban and the Witch, and, spoiler, one of its major focuses is on the witch trials of early modern Europe, and the witch trials are of a lot of interest to people because it was a social phenomenon that begs to be explained, you know, Mm -hmm. basically. There's been a lot of numbers thrown out there about how many people perished in the witch trials, but at least tens of thousands of people or more, and it was like a protracted terror campaign that was waged against the population, and most of the victims were women, right? And there's a long history of feminist analyses of the witch trials, right? And Federici's book comes as another take. And I think part of what's appealing about Federici's book is that it helps us understand the witch trials. And also, it helps us see the witch trials as part of a larger evil, Mm -hmm. sort of, that is not just about patriarchy. It's about the necessity of the subjugation of women under the emerging capitalist order. Yeah, that brings me actually to part of the point of the project here, which is that Federici has identified a lack in some of the various disciplines she participates in uh-huh. and has written this to address those. There's sort of a dichotomy between class and gender that she's trying to heal with this work. Yeah, totally. And part of what she's addressing is that within some schools of feminist thought, specifically the radical feminists, there's this idea that inequality and domination in society and in the state actually stems from an inherent predisposition to dominance that comes from men, Mm -hmm. Uh, which in the definition of radical feminists would specifically mean people born with the XY chromosome or with certain physical characteristics. One of those being generally greater body strength, which has allowed for domination from the uh, more tribal level all the way up until the state, and that patriarchy is built on these essential differences. Yeah. That's the, some radical feminist take. Federici identifies a lot of issues with that that are going to come up in the text, but one of them is that there is a complete lack of historical analysis within that framework. Not only is it homogenizing different cultures and ways of being that don't exist in such a way, but also it's not acknowledging that the creation 
and enforcement of gender has actually actually has historic relevance at certain points when hierarchy and domination are being more thoroughly put down upon a people. Mm-hmm. And right. she thinks that that absence of the historic context is a serious lack that makes the analysis of certain radical feminists not work as well. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And then when then her Marxist discipline, Federici also sees an absence of including gender into the analysis and understanding gender as a means of discipline and suppression and subjugation that is used to make the whole capitalist machine work. She especially thinks that there is an absence of acknowledgement of this whole sphere of reproduction within Marxist thought, which we're going to talk about more in a moment. Yeah. Yeah, basically, Marx thought that what was essential to capitalist accumulation was the labor of the male waged worker. Right. And women and their unpaid household labor and reproductive labor was just kind of not part of the equation, Mm -hmm. you know. And Federici and her people have worked hard to bring it in and to show it to be a really important part of the calculation. Um I wanted to add this when you were talking about the witch trials earlier, too, which is that I feel like I have seen an uptick in interest in the period of time that includes the enclosures and the witch trials, Mm -hmm. which is um, that people, a lot of people of European descent have been sort of examining their own ancestral lineages and their ancestry and seeing that certain really large groups of people were coming over at points during what is called the modern early modern era of European history. And so I think that people have become more interested in this time frame, partially through investigating their own ancestors. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I feel like it's part of it's part of what I think about what is very relevant and enlightening and important about the book, too, is the attention that it pays on the witch trials, but also, as you said, the enclosures, which is a term that refers to basically when like public property became private. And it's not something that had a beginning and an end, like the enclosures are still going on and they are necessarily ongoing to capitalism keeping going, is that things that are held in common, that are not owned, that are not the property of any particular person or firm or corporation or state are privatized, right? And that one term for that process besides maybe privatization is like the enclosures which, as you'll learn, if you don't know already, refers to common land being literally enclosed, like physically enclosed by fencing and hedging, which enforce property boundaries, right? And before the enclosures, we had the commons, which is a word that has a lot of resonance. And I think for those of us of European descent, where The commons was actually a word and a concept of social life explicitly. There is something that like awakens in our revolutionary imagination when we learn about the commons and when we learn about how people once held large tracts of land and resources of subsistence and communal life really in common. It didn't belong to anybody. Uh, and that that's part of what was lost. And then also that the enclosures dispossessed people from really being able to subsist, right? Because you could graze your animals on the common lawns 
And then once you couldn't do that anymore because there were fences, then you might have had to go work in the factories, you know. And so for people like me who are of European descent, it's a very important episode in our history, the history of our ancestors and like of what created not just capitalism, but what created the displacement and the trauma and of our forcible inclusion into capitalism as workers. And also, not only are people dispossessed of their land and of their common resources, a lot of them also were subsequently dispossessed of their land connection. Oh, yeah. And so at a time when people who have been displaced to this continent, either through migration after the enclosures, migration at later times, or through being descendants of enslaved Africans, a lot of us are trying to actually figure out what our peoples were doing before we were yeah. put into this system. Yeah. And part of that is trying to understand what was our spiritual tie to the land base and how did we understand ourselves in connection to our environment historically. Exactly. Yeah. So that we can resuscitate something of that as we move forward mm -hmm. into a life that we would like to create now that has some of those features. So yeah, Federici's attention to the commons and the enclosures is is part of what is really important about this book. She wasn't the first person to do that. I just want to be clear about that. Like Marx himself, Marx wasn't the first person either, but Marx did for sure talk about the enclosures as one of the aspects of what allowed capitalism to get off the ground. Okay. So just a quick rundown of what <laughs> we think is like important about the book or to maybe account for why so many different people are coming at this book from different directions right now. You know, it's really remarkable to see like how many folks have come to this book over the last decade or more. Mm -hmm. It's telling that it has attracted people from all kinds of backgrounds and, you know, not just academics, not just Marxists, not just critical theorists, not just feminists, not just witches, but all of those folks and more because the book exists at a very like thick and potent intersection of a lot of these different energies, you know, um, not just historically, but in the present day too. Okay. But before we can really get on with talking about it chapter by chapter, we do want to go over some of the Marxist vocabulary. Not a lot. We're really just going to talk about like three or four terms here that are important because, you know, you don't need to have a background in Marx to read this book. You don't need to have read any Marx. I mean, I I have read next to none myself. I have just kind of absorbed Marxist theory to the extent that I have from just the atmosphere of being the kind of person who I am that wants to create a different world, right? But a little bit of orientation towards some Marxist concepts would be helpful. So, so the first is not even really a Marxist concept, but the first is capitalism, which is not a word that Marx invented or a concept that Marx invented, but it came to be at around the time when Marx was writing and theorizing. And for a lot of people, his description of what capitalism is and how it works and how it how it functions and evolves is still, you know, the foundation of their understanding of it. The definition that we're going to put out here for capitalism is not Marx's definition specifically. It's just economist definition. It's not a controversial one. It's not a contrary definition. It's just a definition of what it is, right? So, so capitalism, it's a mode of production or an, you might say an economic system 
that is based on private property, right? So that's really important. Capitalism is based on private property, and it's specifically a system where there's an owning class or a ruling class that controls and privately owns what are called the means of production, right? And the means of production, it's kind of what it sounds like. The means of production are the resources that are necessary to have subsistence, to create and obtain the things that are necessary for life. And so under capitalism, the, those things are privately owned or, you know, tend toward private ownership. And so that means private ownership of land, you know, of arable land that can be farmed to produce food, ownership of the mills that produce clothing, that produce flour for people to make bread. All of these things are privately owned by a class of capitalists who are the rich people who own things, buy and sell them, and can develop the, the means of production. And so private ownership of the means of production by a small class of owners, which means that everybody else, I mean, this is kind of simplified, right? But like everybody else is deprived of direct access to the means of production. And so that means that they have to go through the owners, the bosses in order to subsist. And so classically, this would be like the creation of wage labor, right? Like you have to work for someone who owns the means, like you have to just be a cog in the machine that makes the clothes in order to earn money to buy clothes, right? Um, instead of being part of like another mode of production where clothes are just made as part of the community that you exist in, let's say. Um, and so you get clothes just by membership in that community, right? Uh, so wage labor, private owns of the means of production, and then capitalism is also concerned with markets. And so that means monetized existence where there's money and money is used to buy and sell products or what are called commodities. And so under capitalism, a hammer is not just a tool. A hammer is also a commodity that can be produced by a factory that makes hammers and then is bought and sold. You know, So this adds another layer, what Marx would call an, a layer of alienation to life, where your tool is not just this thing that you made that you can then use, but it's also exists in this market monetized sphere of things that are bought and sold and that they are produced for profit, right? So this is the basic definition of capitalism. You're familiar with it. You live in it. <laughs> Even if you haven't thought so much about the nuts and bolts of it, you know it. Um, one thing that I do want to talk about too, as we're talking about capitalism is I mentioned that the capitalist class, the owning class, the ruling class owns the means of production. And production is a word that the meaning of that is pretty intuitive, right? It basically just means the production of goods, right? The production of things that we need. And specifically under capitalism, because what's produced is not just is not just a tool to use or a meal to eat, it's also a commodity. And capitalism is based on commodities. Production involves the production of commodities, the production of something that capitalists can profit off of, you know, and they profit off of the labor of the workers, right? Because by definition, a commodity is sold for more than it costs to produce, right? And that's how the capitalists live without working, is that they make the use of everyone else's labor. 
The reason I'm talking about production is because in Marxist lingo, it's a separate concept from a related word, which is reproduction. <laughs> so there's the sphere of production, and then there's the sphere of reproduction. And reproduction, we know that word to mean like having babies, right? And having babies is definitely part of the sphere of reproduction, but it's not just that because reproduction in this terminology is all of the activity that doesn't produce commodities, but that is necessary for the capitalist mode of production to reproduce itself. And that means like to keep going every day all of the other activity and labor that it's maybe not monetized, but it's necessary for capitalism to keep going. And so that includes like, yeah, making babies, but also educating children, raising them, um, doing the laundry, keeping house, keeping house, you know, cooking meals, fixing your car when it breaks because it's your car that gets you to work like mm -hmm. all of these things is like the sphere of reproduction and it's what like i said it's it's all of that activity that it's part of the economy in the sense that the economy wouldn't work without it mm -hmm. but it's not a monetized commodity producing part of the economy so it's important to remember that when we say reproduction we are not just talking about having children yeah when we're talking about reproduction in the terms of this book. And yeah. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And, um, and reproductive labor. Mm -hmm. It's not just yeah. going into labor. So another important term, and maybe, well, not exactly the last one, but close to the last one, <laughs> is primitive accumulation, which is in the title. The book, again, is called Caliban and the Witch, Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation. And what is primitive accumulation? Yeah, this is the term that, like, I think plenty of people have lifted the book up and read the subtitle and been mystified by that part because... I think I might have been even when I fir the first time I read the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, primitive accumulation is basically the idea that within capitalism, within this economy... You know, you need you need money to make money or you need resources to make money. And actually, before Marx discussed primitive accumulation, it was just kind of an idea out there in in the writing and thought of capitalist theorists like Adam Smith. Adam Smith called it original accumulation or sometimes previous accumulation. And it just means what started it all. What was the pool of resources that people started grew capitalism out of? And Primitive has that sense too. Yeah, it's first. Just to be clear, it's right. like primitive in the sense of primary. Yeah, the first, the first, right? The first accumulation, not like backwards or right. low tech yeah. or something like that. It basically means original. It's just actually a translation issue that made Marx's version turn into primitive accumulation. Actually, mm -hmm. um, but in Adam Smith's version, primitive accumulation went this way. There was a bunch of people working, and some of them were just kind of better workers and more diligent and hardworking, not as lazy, didn't take as many breaks, and they kind of just put up a little bigger pile on a nest egg, and then they got to buy things. And that's how capitalism started. So <laughs> Marx was like, that's bullshit. Right, right. Um, that's not what happened. And um, what actually happened was that there was a great deal of violence and that the original resources that made up primitive accumulation came through force and extortion. Right. 
And in Marx's version, and a lot of Marx's serious versions, this is this happened through the extensive violence of colonization, where actual lands were expropriated and stolen, and resources were extracted there, which piled up a bunch of resources for people back in Europe to build up their businesses and all and their capital yes that their ca- they got capital there and then also through forced labor and enslavement in those places even before the slave trade started indigenous folks were enslaved in all of the colonies mm-hmm. so that was part of the original accumulation and then also back in England there were the enclosures which Dave spoke of earlier which was the taking of the common land to put in the bank basically for the owner class so the landed gentry mm-hmm. got to be give, got even more land, and they then got to force people to go work in the mills and therefore extorted labor from the people who they displaced. So we had these two types of terrain that were confiscated to create wealth that more wealth could be created from. Yeah. What Federici is adding with this book is the idea that through the witch trials... There was a third terrain that was foundational to the primitive accumulation of early capitalism, and that was the body of the people who are tried as witches. And through the violence against these women and other people who were executed during the witch hunts of those few hundred years, their whole communities were terrorized and forced into compliance with giving up their lands and with the changes in labor that gave them less autonomy and less abundance in their lives. Mm -hmm. So she identifies the body of the witch or the person tried as witch as a third terrain that was the ground of wealth accumulation and primitive accumulation. Yeah. I just say when you're talking about Adam Smith, yeah, to me, like that's the difference between history and economics. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, or right. anthropology and economics, or something. Mm-hmm. Where Adam Smith, his project is to show you how capitalism just 
came about. Right. And not to show you, but just to speculate. To provide a you know, story, an origin story. Like, it's yeah. purely speculation. It reminds me of Thomas Hobbes. I mean, it reminds me of like all of these theorists about the social contract who who were like, oh, people chose to be part of the state so that they would be like more protected and safer, mm-hmm. you know, and but we know from looking at history that like this has never been right. the story. People didn't choose. They were never asked. It was always like done by other means, you know, and usually that involved violence. You know, David Graeber's great book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, is really good on this, too, like about how the origin of money and monetizing things, like having an abstract numerical value to stuff, it didn't just emerge as some way to make barter, which economists assume predated money, like a smoother <laughs> and more versatile way of transacting. Barter wasn't widely practiced. Barter wasn't the default way that people got things. It's like when you're not looking at the actual history, then you know that your project is just to show that the system that you're invested in is just a completely normal progression for people. Economists are basically myth makers posing as social scientists. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like Milton Friedman. He's just like, if we just left the market alone, you know, like things would just go great. And what we actually see happening is the nightmare of unfettered corporate uh, abuse, you know. But anyway, we could talk more about that, I suppose. But. But But primitive accumulation, the question of primitive accumulation is a question of history. Mm -hmm. It's a question that asks, how did the conditions for capitalism even come to be? Right. Like, how did we arrive at a state where a small number of people controlled all the resources? Right. And there was a landless proletariat that had to turn to them for subsistence. Right. Right. Because that's not just a given of human nature. Mm-hmm. And if that's the the definition of capitalism, how did how did that even come to be? Right. You know? And so in every way, this book is a book of history that addresses the question of how that came to be. Mm-hmm. You know? And so that's why it's on the on the cover of the book, you know, primitive accumulation even though um, it's not a widely, widely known term. Mm-hmm. Right. I guess it's important for us just to go ahead and hit another word that's on the cover, uh, which is women. Yeah. I guess it's important for us to ask, what does Silvia Federici mean by women? Who is a woman? Definitely. Because it's a loaded. It's a loaded term. term. Yeah. Yeah. You could definitely feel at times as if there was a sort of essentialist telling of who woman is in this story. Yeah, Federici has definitely been accused by some of having an essentialist concept of womanhood in this book or deploying an essentialist concept of womanhood by not really acknowledging or going into the diversity of womanhood Mm -hmm. and who can lay claim to that word. Not all women reproduce. Mm -hmm. Not all women even have a uterus, mm-hmm. right? That she doesn't engage with any of this thinking that problematizes and contests the biologically essentialist category of mm-hmm. womanhood, you know? And um, I think that those critiques are, they're valid here. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
they're valid here. She she doesn't spend a lot of time, you know, problematizing or expanding on, you know, what intersects inside this term woman. And definitely I feel like a different book with a different kind of style could have been written, mm-hmm. right, about this same historical moment that approached the category of woman differently. Right. Um, she has a methodology here that has some kind of logic to it mm-hmm. that I do have some respect for, which is that she's basically saying, like, we need to be able to talk about women as a subject in history, a subject of like a particular kind of oppression, which has to do with their assignment of the reproductive sphere mm-hmm. as their assigned domain of activity. And that this would be something that is especially heightened in the creation of capitalism mm-hmm. and onward. Right. Women are the people who are limited to the sphere of reproduction. Mm-hmm. In the broader sense. Yeah. Yeah. Not just having babies, like we said, but the sphere of reproduction is in like all of the unwaged work that keeps the capitalist machine going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a functional definition there. And uh, she doesn't go into the nuances that I think a lot of people wish that she did. Yeah. And I think that it is interesting that it was probably written in the mid 90s. And that I think if she wrote it today, there might be more time spent on that. And I Mm -hmm. have some reasons for thinking that. But before I go into that, I just wanted to say that what I find helpful in thinking about this framework with what she's talking about about women is to think of it as a role and assigned role. And so, yes, there are some biological commonalities with some of the people who are being subjugated in this way. Yeah. But really, it's anyone who's assigned the role of running a household who's denied the same status as men. And so we know that that would include intersex people, that would include queer folks, it would include trans folks, even though those identities may not have existed at that time. Mm-hmm. It would still include those people. And so... Mm-hmm. When we're saying women, we're going to be talking about the people who are assigned the role of making the sphere of reproduction work. Of all of that. And when you say running a household, you don't mean like necessarily at the head of the household, but like doing the labor. And the grunt work, usually. The grunt work, making it work, yeah. Um, And so I just want to add to like that uh, some folks pointed out on Instagram that it would be helpful to be reading alongside this Witchcraft and the Gay Counterculture by Arthur Evans, which is a book that came out in the 70s. Um, And so I've been revisiting that book. And so has Dave. And there are some good criticisms to be that are made in that text that you might want to get a copy of that as well. Um, And maybe we'll put the title of that in the notes as well. So that's something that would be interesting to read alongside this. And also, I wanted to... What's that book about? Oh, and (laughs) thanks. Arthur Evans wrote Witchcraft and the Gay Counterculture to acknowledge that just as in the 1970s, second wave feminists were identifying their own lineage of being in, in a continued tradition with people who practiced witchcraft back into Europe, Um, And we now know that maybe there is a little bit of idealization and wrong-headed notions around how continuous that lineage actually is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Arthur Evans wrote this book recognizing that there was also within the gay counterculture a desire to connect to that lineage and that just as during the witch trials of the early modern era, era, there was violence against women, there was also violence against gender nonconforming people 
um, including people who might be later identified as gay or queer. And Arthur Evans was placing his counterculture within that stream of witchcraft as well and claiming a place there. So that's something that could be a supplemental text to help us round out the ideas of who all was impacted by the witch hunts. Um, But also I want to say that I just got a new book in the mail by Federici from PM Press that's called Beyond the Periphery of the Skin, Rethinking, Remaking, and Reclaiming the Body in Contemporary Capitalism. And it is more recent. In fact, 2020 is the copyright date. And in it, Federici does open up more of the category of woman, talks about some of the problems of that category, and acknowledges the erasure of intersex and queer folks. And so I just want to say that she does seem to be adding to her own body of work on that and expanding her thoughts on it. Yeah, definitely. Her more recent writings have have a lot more to say about the problematic category of womanhood. So just to say that, but while we're discussing women in this podcast, we're going to be talking about the people who were assigned the role of reproduction mm-hmm. in right. early, early modern era in England and Western Europe. Right. Because it's a, it's important that in Federici's thinking, it's an assigned, imposed, and enforced role. Right. It's not a personal identity. Right. Really. What's important about it in this context is the constructed Mm -hmm. and enforced nature of Mm -hmm. it. We've talked about some aspects of the title, especially the subtitle, Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation. But what about the main title, which is Caliban and the Witch? What does that refer to? Well, Caliban and the Witch are both characters in William Shakespeare's play, The Tempest which is one of the more magical plays. There have been a lot of beautiful productions of it. Um, But in that story, Caliban... Well, okay. In that story, uh, Wizard? Is he a wizard? What would you call Prospero? Yeah, he's a magician. There's, yeah, the Tempest. There's a lot going on with the Tempest. (laughs) It definitely touches on colonization and the (laughs) British colonial project. Its main character is a magician named Prospero, who is said to be modeled after the famous British magician and court astrologer to Elizabeth I, John Dee, who is also an architect of the British Empire. There's a lot going on in The Tempest, and this book picks out Caliban. Caliban is the person who is living on the island when Prospero and his daughter get shipwrecked there. And And he's kind of a half-monster. Yeah. He's like only partly human. Right. But also through a lot of different productions over time, he became to embody more of like the wild native, the wild man of the colonies. And so because of that, he eventually was embraced as a symbol of anti-colonial revolt by different anti-colonial theorists, especially M.A. Cesar. Mm-hmm. I'm probably not saying his name right. Yeah, who who wrote a version of The Tempest right. in which Caliban was the enslaved person who was like in revolt against mm-hmm. his master, Prospero. So Caliban, in a way, stands for both the colonial subject and also the enslaved African mm-hmm. in the imagination of people in revolt against colonization right. and slavery. Right. Yeah. The witch in The Tempest is not much of a character. In fact, she's just talked about instead mm-hmm. of actually being on the stage. Her name is Sycorax, and she is the mother of Caliban in the play. 
But I would say that maybe the witch in the title of this book, even though there is a witch in Caliban, Mm -hmm. more has to do with the witch of the witch trials in the early modern era. Well, she says in the either the preface or the intro that she is talking about Caliban and the witch both from the Tempest, mm-hmm. but that while the witch in the Tempest is not uh, much of a character and is just talked about because she's already dead, that she's bringing her much more to the forefront, partially as a stand-in for the witches of the witch hunt. Yeah, as the embodiment of a world of female subjects that capitalism had to destroy. Right. The heretic, the healer, the disobedient wife, the woman who dared to live alone, the Obeha woman who poisoned the master's food and inspired the slaves to revolt. Right. That's a quote. In case you could quote from the book. And I think that she picks these two characters to be the title of the book and to be sort of the framework of the book, because as we're going to see as we go along... There were there was sort of a mirroring process between what was happening out in the newly conquered lands of col- the colonizers and what was happening back home to the people who were being executed as witches. And there was definitely a parallel between the indigenous folks who were being subjected to this new framework of capitalism and to the peasantry at home. And so that parallel is what's framing the book. Yeah. And we're going to be, as we continue reading the book, we're going to see these two characters coming up again and what they represent yeah. over and over. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's the title of the book and a lot of the context for the book. And I'm trying to think about if there's more in the preface and the introduction, because that's what we've assigned ourselves to talk about today is the preface and the introduction. Then we're going to really get in with chapter one next time. I'm thinking about one part that I learned a lot from is just the preface page eight, where she's basically explaining her lineage and how she didn't come up with her analysis all by herself. She gives credit to a bunch of other women who were working to elucidate the Marxist theory and to account for the role of women in capitalism, because Marx really notoriously just like didn't theorize the role of women or the condition of women and even the sphere of reproduction to which women were assigned very much at all. The sphere of reproduction was like it wasn't part of wage labor. It wasn't part of commodity production. And so he didn't put much attention to it. And sexism and patriarchy was accounted for just by either the continuation of like kind of like ancient patriarchy. Or by reference to the fact that, like, because women were not wage laborers, because they weren't allowed access to the wage, that they had a lower status because of that, Mm -hmm. you know? And that was kind of all that was done, um, according to Federici here. (laughs) And then uh, the women who she worked with and her came up with a theory that actually showed how far from being irrelevant to commodity production and capitalist production, that women's labor and the sphere of reproduction was actually one of the main things that made it all happen Mm -hmm. and that it was crucial to capitalist production. Right. The production of workers, Mm -hmm. like just in the sense of like actual biological reproduction to produce workers for the capitalist to exploit. And then also all of the other reproductive labor of just like raising them and maintaining a household and everything that we just talked about. And that in some sense... The ruling elites knew this, mm-hmm. 
it wasn't just out of their attention, like let's focus on the men and building factories and exploiting these laborers. But at some sense, the elites knew this. And so therefore, this domain of biological and social reproduction had to be controlled and exploited too. Mm -hmm. Because it was so important to the functioning of capitalism. It's kind and, of mind-blowing. Not, right? not incidental to it or as just kind of a a residue of like patriarchy's past. Mm -hmm. You know, that's definitely there too, but patriarchy was intensified as we will see really grotesquely by the development of capitalism. So, yeah. I was just going to say that it's mind-blowing in this way that it's almost like the genius of understanding that it could work that way. Like, it's almost like when you read about the construction of race and how race is used here in the United States to, like, keep people from actually acknowledging who's in charge and that the rich is the enemy, um, that the rich are the enemy. Like, we, because of the creation of race and white supremacy, that is, it's built in as this destabilizer of solidarity, yep. you know? And it makes me just think of that. Like, I'm like how, uh, the brilliance of... Just like if we go ahead and subjugate women very formally or uh, half the population that we're going to call women, then we're going to be able to keep the whole thing running mm -hmm. by by using all this free labor and then also by creating a class that's the lowest, you know? By creating divisions, yeah. In fact, I wasn't going to read this, but since you said this, it's perfect. Uh, this is right out of the book. Sexual hierarchies, we found are always at the service of a project of domination that can sustain itself only by dividing on a continuously renewed basis those it intends to rule. Mm-hmm. Bingo. Right. Right? I think it's also, when I am thinking about this right now too, I think it's important that we uh, acknowledge that when we essentialize any class of people by gender, we are doing that work. Yeah. And yeah, definitely. there's a lot of that that goes on in the left, you know, mm -hmm. even for though there's a lot of pushback against the essentialism of radical feminists, it's still totally okay to essentialize men all the time. Uh huh. Um, so I just want to say that we should think about which hierarchies we are reinforcing when we do that. Uh huh. I also really like this part um, because it drew attention to something that I kind of, if I ever knew, I kind of forgot about Marx. And it's that Marx, while thinking capitalism was totally evil, he also saw it as necessary and as a step towards liberation because he thought we needed capitalism to develop the machines that would make it so none of us had to work. So mm -hmm. he thought that once the machines were going good enough or that had been developed through, I guess maybe he believed in capitalist innovation even, I don't know, um then there would be increased productivity increased productivity mm -hmm. then we would get to a place where the workers could seize those means of production and then we would get to create the world we want to live in um and that it was absolutely necessary to have this part and was still an improvement maybe on people's lives compared to before and what federici points out here in the introduction and preface is that she's just like if he was actually thinking about the roles of women or the life of women at all then he would never have been able to delude himself that life was improving with capitalism. Right, right. One other important part of the, her context, of Federici's context that comes up in the preface 
is that uh, she was had been working a lot around studying the early modern era in Europe, but then went to teach in Nigeria in the mid-80s. And this was at the same time that the International Monetary Fund and World Bank were both moving into countries around the world in the global south and restructuring them. And what she saw happening was basically a contemporary version of the enclosures and of the subjugation of those who were in charge of the sphere of reproduction. So she saw this as very immediate and ongoing, and she saw resistance to that, and she saw the level of violence it was taking to create this new round of accumulation, and that was part of the background for making this book. Yeah. Yeah, that part was super interesting, because she's like accounting for her journey to writing this book, basically, in this part, and yeah... To go from like studying enclosures and primitive accumulation in the early modern period and then going to the global south, you know, specifically to Nigeria and seeing those processes happening in real time right then, Mm -hmm. you know, triggering this realization that primitive accumulation is not something that just happens once and for all. Mm -hmm. That go out. Mm -hmm. It has to be happening continuously Mm -hmm. for capitalism to have the growth that it needs to exist you know and so there's always an edge to capitalist expansion where commons or unexploited resources quote-unquote are being like brought in Mm -hmm. into alienation and exploitation yeah and another thing and you alluded to this that i liked about that part was that she witnessed how much people were resisting right entering the capitalist mode of production I might just want to skip to the end and share a couple of passages Mm. that I thought were really great. That sounds great. That the introduction actually ends with. So at the end of the intro, she writes, uh, Indeed, the political lesson that we can learn from Caliban and the Witch is that capitalism as a social economic system is necessarily committed to racism and sexism. For capitalism must justify and mystify the contradictions built into its social relations. The promise of freedom versus the reality of widespread coercion. And the promise of prosperity versus the reality of widespread penury. By denigrating the nature of those it exploits, women, colonial subjects, the descendants of African slaves, the immigrants displaced by globalization. I think that that is really important Mm -hmm. Um, and a really good summary that that capitalism is necessarily committed to racism and sexism. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people still think we can have a capitalism without those. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh huh. Capitalism is built on contradictions Mm -hmm. and it has to mystify those contradictions by denigrating the nature of those it exploits. And she goes on to say, it is impossible, therefore, to associate capitalism with any form of liberation or attribute the longevity of the system to its capacity to satisfy human needs. If capitalism has been able to reproduce itself, it is only because of the web of inequalities that it has built into the body of the world proletariat and because of its capacity to globalize exploitation. This process is still unfolding under our eyes 
as it has for the last 500 years. The difference is that today, the resistance to it has also achieved a global dimension. And so next time we're going to be doing chapter one proper. And what's that going to be about? So chapter one is called All the World Needs a Jolt, Social Movements and Political Crisis in Medieval Europe. And I'm super excited about chapter one because we're going to be talking about one of my favorite historical topics, which is what life was like in the Middle Ages and that maybe the Dark Ages were not so dark. Yeah. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about the different forms of resistance and the heretical communities that existed within Europe and in defiance of the all-powerful Catholic state. And I'm just pretty excited to talk about that stuff. Um, yeah, the so. international heretic movements. Yeah. A topic that's dear to our hearts. For sure. For sure. And so we're going to be discussing, like, what was the context and background uh, before? What, what was going on that made the powers that be need to create a new system of control? Right. And the answer is people were raising hell. And it's pretty fun to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Great. That's going to be next time. Stay with us for chapter one of Caliban and the Witch coming up soon. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. The music you're hearing right now is the great band Big Blood from Portland, Maine. Thanks to them for the music. And some of the other music you heard in between us talking was from I Love You. You can find links to both those bands' music in the show notes.